0: Time for this week's Chip Chat. We're joined by journalist Chip Kibbins, the policy director over at Defending Rights and Dissent, that he speaks only on his own behalf every week on Chip Chat. Hey, Chip.
1: Hey, Sam and Sam. So Hello, Chip. you're not
0: speaking on behalf of Defending Rights and Dissent, but uh, we should plug that the group is holding an event uh, in a few days. Uh, what is it? This I guess it's on Monday, right?
1: On Monday. So, Monday, March 8th is International Women's Day. I am aware of that, but it is also the 50th anniversary of the... For all the ladies uh,
0: listening to this, happy International Women's F- Day.
1: It's the men who probably need to hear it, though. I think the women already know. Um, <laughs> but but anyways... your girls right. We are hosting uh, an event on... Uh, on uh march the 8th at three o'clock p.m on the so march the 8th is the 50th anniversary of the break-in of the fbi office at media media pennsylvania um the fbi had been engaging in surveillance of the anti-war movement then which we're going to talk about today and a group of people uh broke into the office and we're having two of the people who, who broke in uh keith and 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 betty we're also had keith and bonnie we're also having betty medzker who was the washington post reporter who uh took their documents and i'm going to talk more about that in a minute as well as paul coates and michael german and then johanna hamilton who directed the film 1971 on the break-in so it's a very exciting event uh i would strongly recommend you tune in or at the very least watch on youtube after the fact
0: so 50 years since the break-in at the uh, FBI office that exposed the COINTEL program.
1: What's the significance
0: of this event 50 years later, Chip?
1: Well, for sure, so 50 years ago, there was a group of about eight people who were involved in uh, protesting and resisting the anti-Vietnam War, I believe. Some of them had been involved in these sort of raids on draft offices where they took uh, draft records and destroyed them. That was a, a common tactic amongst the more militant uh, wing of the movement, especially uh, Catholic priests like the Berrigan brothers. Uh, and some of them had also been involved in the civil rights movement and been freedom riders. So as a result, they had a very strong sense that the FBI was against movements for racial justice, against movements. Uh, to end the war in Vietnam and we sabotaging and destroying their actions. Of course, it's one thing to to know the government is up to no good. It's another thing to be able to prove it, right? You can make all kinds of claims about the government, and I, I believe you do, Sam Sachs, uh, but people always want to say, like, ah, whats what where is your proof of that? So someone suggested, well, why don't we just break into the FBI building and, and get the proof, which is... Kind of a ludicrous idea, but actually worked really well.
2: Uh, can can I just jump in for a quick second, Chip? Because one of the reasons that this is the 50th anniversary of the media Pennsylvania break-in is because it's also the 50th anniversary of the greatest fight in boxing history, Smoke and Joe Frazier versus Muhammad Ali. They were both undefeated. They went 15 rounds. Frazier ended up winning. Uh, in a unanimous decision, but they chose that night the uh, Citizens Committee to investigate the FBI because, like, this was like a big event for cops. Like, they wanted to watch the the uh, the boxing match, and uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, though he lost the fight, he did end up helping the uh, anti-war movement that he uh, supported by uh, fighting on that night. <laughs>
0: And Excellent Ali back. did win the rematch and won the rubber match, the Thrilla in Manila, against Joe Frazier. So Ali ultimately won, won the fight, even though he lost the first fight. Go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to get the record straight that <laughs> when it comes down to who the greater boxer was between Ali and Frazier, it was Ali, even though he lost the first fight to Frazier. Yes.
1: Men punch each other on International Women's Day. There's probably some subtext there we could analyze. I I will leave that to someone else. Um, (laughs) Anyways, so anyway, so they're originally going to break into the Philadelphia office. That was just impossible. And they learn there is a uh, uh, office in Media, Pennsylvania, which is much less densely populated. As we've already gone into, they chose March 8th, not because it was International Women's Day, but because uh, there was a boxing match. Uh, and they put together this plan. One of them studies lock, lock picking. They uh, case the joint. Uh, one develops a plan to uh, distract any police by, by saying her car is broke down. If they come near the building, no police come near. They're all watching boxing. So they break into the building and they seize a bunch of FBI documents. Um, And one of the documents they see is a memo directly, either to or from Hoover, that mentions uh, a deliberate plan to sow paranoia in the anti-war movement so that uh, every anti-war activist would think there was an FBI agent behind every mailbox. They take these documents, they spend a week going through them, uh, and then they mail them to different reporters. They mail them to the New York Times. And guess what the New York Times does? They mail them back to J. Edgar Hoover uh <laughs> all of all of the papers send the documents back to the fbi except for the washington post where uh betty Metzger, who later wrote the book when these people came forward uh does an article about the documents another journalist uh carl stern at nbc looks at the documents and he notes an interesting word on the documents Pro. and he's like what is what is what is a CoinTel Pro, uh, and he decides to use the recently passed Freedom of Information Act to 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 FOIA uh, CoinTel Pro, which the FBI does not like. But eventually, a court. Imagine
0: uh, having such a juicy FOIA right there for you.
2: <laughs> you come across this term, and you're like, "Hmm, I wonder what this term's all about." I guess I'll FOIA it. It shows. It also shows the importance of uh, you really need lawyers when you're filing FOIAs. because when it's when it's a when it's a juicy when it's a juicy piece of info like that, you're probably going to have to go to the mat for it.
1: I also suspect the court today would not rule in favor of the journalist. Hmm. Well, it depend- I'm
0: maybe I'm if I'm they
2: had Beth as their lawyer, <laughs> FOIA lawyer, Beth. Beth Borden, Ken Klippenstein's uh, uh, FOIA counsel. She
1: is. She is Ken Klippenstein's FOIA counsel. So um, so,
0: so, we got this. So th- so this guy, the NBC reporter, files the FOIA request for COINTELPRO.
1: And he gets documents. And then we have the church committee. And then, you know, we, we, we learn all about COINTELPRO. Um... So, you know, the FBI has done a number of nefarious acts over the century. Uh, You know, they made a list of people to be detained without trial in the event of an emergency. They frequently did illegal break-ins and wiretaps, claiming that because of an inherent executive authority, uh, neither the courts nor Congress could stop them from doing this. Uh, Also, apparently, the Attorney General and President couldn't stop them from doing this, which is a very odd sort of uh, inherent executive authority where the uh, people higher up in the executive also can't check your authority. Uh, The Constitution just just gives wide powers to the FBI over all the other uh, branches of government per per the legal theories of J. Edgar Hoover. And recently, we know they have these definitions of domestic terrorism that purposely incorporate speech. And then they deploy this sort of counter-radicalization preventative theory where they treat pre, uh, speech as a likely precursor to violence and then target speech. And then a ton of bad things, but Pro sort of looms the largest in the public imagination to the point where people sort of fold in all other surveillance and mischief and uh, protection acts in point of pro. So counterintelligence is the act of neutralizing a hostile foreign agent because it's about a hostile foreign agent and involves the techniques of war. uh, All of the constitutional niceties that apply in other situations do not. So the very act of using counterintelligence against domestic groups is a severe uh, departure from the constitutional order. But as the church committee said, Counterintelligence was a misname of this program. They weren't even doing counterintelligence. They were doing covert action, um, right? Covert action to protect the existing political and social order. So what what happens is in 1956, the FBI becomes concerned the supreme court is too liberal that they can't arrest and jail communists so they start a program of uh vigilantism of illegal vigilantism to prevent the exercise of first amendment rights of speech and association it originally targets the communist party uh obviously the fbi argues that uh everyone can be infiltrated by communism so they can target civil rights movements they also quickly turn on Puerto Rican groups and the Socialist Workers Party. The Socialist Workers Party, along with the Communist Party, was sort of the, the, the main nemesis of the FBI in these days. And then they just expand into first uh, white nationalist hate groups and then black extremists and then finally the, the so-called new left, which was just a term Hoover used for anyone he didn't like. So these are very broad programs of of, um, very destructive actions with the Panthers. You know, one of the goals was to incite violence between the Panthers and other organizations and people die because of that. And,
2: um, basically I, I think it, 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 earlier in your answer, you were alluding to the, the fact that not all, uh, FBI malfeasance from the, uh, from the Hoover era in the, in the late fifties, sixties, seventies, not all of that sort of, uh, mischief did come out as a result of the media break-in, but a lot did. And it sort of reminds me of how, uh, during the, um, Snowden and the Chelsea Manning revelations, you would have, uh, national security state lackeys sort of saying oh this is criminal this is a criminal act and first of all a no it's not and b even if it was so what because a criminal act on paper a criminal act uh revealed some of the most horrific abuses of the u.s government in the 20th century
1: yeah, no, no, I, I think that's correct. Unfortunately, I, I do think that on paper it is most definitely a, a, a criminal act. <laughs> the laws are written uh, very broadly in giving government rights to, to, to maintain secrecy and criminalize those who tell the truth, which is part of the reason why I worked so hard to have the Espionage Act amend it. Um, right, because it is on paper very, very bad. I know, I know when I would do the pardon Snowden campaign, people would get very angry, being like, oh, a pardon means he's done something wrong and he's committed no crime. And it's like, thank you, Twitter user. You get charged with the Espionage Act in the Eastern District of Virginia and, and, and tell me you've committed no crime. Don't ask for a pardon. And, and let's see how your life turns out. Um right. So I understand the point you're making, but I do I do I do want to stress that like Congress does pass laws that are very bad. Sure. Courts the executive interprets them even worse than Congress intended them to be and the courts say, Okay, okay. Um um so so yeah. And I um I, I do think it's important when we look at cases like um Snowden or Manning or Terry Albury, an FBI whistleblower who was charged and did time in prison under the Espionage Act and who is still under carceral supervision, uh, to look at sort of the attacks on whistleblowers today. And, you know, Twitter has started this policy where with some articles like this one from the Gray Zone, if you share it, they put on the article... Uh, This was the result of hacked documents or may have been the result of hacked documents. But, you know, the entire existence of Pro is known because of a burglary, which is, I think, you know, old school hacking, if you will. Right. Daniel Ellsberg was not supposed to be copying the Pentagon Papers and riding around them in the trunk of his car, are we going to be on every single article ever that mentions CoinTelPro, which is like any article written about like the FBI that's like they wanted a bad thing? Are we going to put a handle on that? This was the result of uh, of hacking. Um, I, I I really think you know obviously I don't generally condone hacking. I think it's it's you know people have a right to privacy on their computers, but like when you have information in the that's of public interest. Right, like a war crime or a secret intelligence program. I'm, I'm not interested in someone's divorce or if they drink too much or if they have um, eccentric, uh, salacious habits. Right, I'm talking about actual public interest stuff, not tabloid like gossip. Right, if you're a journalist, you have a responsibility to publish it. You should not be sending the Coinbase Pro documents back to the FBI. Yeah, p- people
2: have the right to privacy. Powerful institutions do not.
1: Yes, 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 yes. I think that's the distinction. Yes. The FBI is uh, perhaps a corporate person, but um, uh, they do not have a personal right to privacy in their unconstitutional attempts to kill Black Panthers.
2: Law enforcement agencies are people, my friends. When when The New York Times was sending these
0: documents back to the FBI, was that before or after they were publishing the Pentagon Papers? Because this is all in the (laughs) same year.
1: That's a really great question, and it is one I should know the answer to. And um...
0: Well, either way, they, they all happen within months of each other at some yes. point. And, and, and I'm just wondering if this was something that, you know, given how you're... explosive the, the COINTEL program documents ended up being, to where it would have justified retroactively any decision to publish them and shown that it was wrong to send the documents back given their newsworthiness, this event, uh, you know, changed the way news outlets probably think about stuff like this. Um, But then again, it was happening at the same time as the Pentagon Papers, which would have been another event that would have uh, given news outlets um, more, I guess, faith in the process of publishing these secret government documents because they are indeed newsworthy as shown by the revelations in both events.
1: Pentagon papers were in June. This was in March. I also think a huge part of this was that uh, J. Edgar Hoover had a very different relationship with the media than other branches of government. He was both a very good at manipulating the media. Hence why they made all these ridiculous Hollywood films like the FBI story and I was a communist for the FBI and the J. Edgar Hoover children's book um, that horrifies me and also people were frightened by him right because he had a lot of um information on everyone uh more so than i think people can even fathom uh right when i when the film 1971 came out it was screened at congress at an event sponsored by the late uh john conyers who flat out told the off the audience the only reason the church committee happened was because jedger hoover was dead right everyone was so afraid of Edgar hoover
2: I'm not trying to. Uh, I'm not trying to make an excuse for the New York Times, but I can see them. Uh, I can see their fear of who of Hoover being triggered more by the fact that they they. I assume they knew who Ellsberg was. They knew who their source on the Pentagon Papers was, and nobody knew who the Citizens Committee to Investigate the FBI was for decades. And you mentioned that earlier. Uh, in in this segment where uh, you're talking about how Betty Metzger finally revealed some of the members in her 2014 book and that some of these members will be uh, on your panel in a, in a few days which is rather exciting can you talk a little bit about how uh, about the operational security of the group and how they were sort of able to um, keep their heads down and and, and avoid uh, government scrutiny for so long?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, and I don't know the specifics, but I do know that J. Edgar Hoover assigned 200 agents to this case, and they could not find these people, and for over 40 years, no one knew who it was. And in 2014, uh, five of the eight participants chose to come forward. They talked to a lawyer, and the lawyer told them that— um, the statute of limitations on theft of government property was over. It was unlikely they would be charged under the Espionage Act because what they did wasn't, which I don't totally understand the lawyer's interpretation, the Espionage Act, but, but fine. And at the time, the Espionage Act had a statute of limitations of 10 years. So the statute of limitations was up, and five of them on full work for this book and his PBS documentary, and both the author of the book and the documentary filmmaker will be on the panel on Monday. Um, I could definitely ask the burglars about their operational security of the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI on your behalf, Sam. Um, Please do. I, I will do so. I will do so. I will uh, be tuning I, in. Report the back points. on the uh,
0: next Chip Chat on what they yes. say. Uh,
1: how did it go? Yes. Um, yeah, so it's, it, it, it is. And, you know, part of the reason they come forward in 2014 is because of Snowden. Right, they speak out in defense of Snowden, who himself, you know, exposed government documents without committing a burglary. By the way, right, without breaking in anywhere, um, and you know, is living in exile in Russia because the U.S. government has taken his passport, bullied the nation of Ecuador, stranded him in Russia, and charged him with the Espionage Act. Um, delightful. Well, I and do- it was Joe Biden who personally called Rafael Correa, uh, then president of Ecuador, to tell him not to get grant asylum to Snowden. Correa had, Correa had of course, uh, granted asylum quite heroically to journalist and publisher Julian Assange, who is currently in Belmarsh prison.
0: Yeah. Well, well, all these issues are, of course, extremely relevant again today as the uh, FBI is considering... Uh, asking for more powers to surveil domestic extremist groups domestic so-called domestic terrorist groups following the uh january 6th capital putsch and um as you as you touched- attempt putsch attempt as you touched on i mean yeah i, gu- I guess i mean d- uh, does a putsch need to like be successful in overthrowing a government it
2: Actually, maybe you're right. I don't know. Yeah. I will uh, withdraw my correction for now. <laughs> they
0: did get what? in the Capitol and cause cause some violence. So um...
1: and prayer. I saw this <laughs> rishijaman. He was pr- giving That's a true. sacred prayer in a sacred chamber. What's what's so wrong about that?
2: <laughs> That's what's true.
1: What's so wrong?
2: He was just looking for some clout.
1: He stopped them from stealing muffins. He stopped them from stealing muffins, and he said a prayer to bless the sacred chamber. Which is part of shamanism. His only regret in life is that he believed when the police uh, waved him into the building, he had permission to go in there. Which I don't know. If I was on that jury and he said that, I, I don't. I don't want to tell the Chip Chat audience what verdict I might return for the QAnon sham, uh, because I. I kind of feel like once the police wave you into a building. Oh, uh, You've got free reign to say all the prayers, so long as you don't steal any muffins. I don't think
0: you'd be uh, picked to serve on any jury, Chip. I don't think many of us I think would actually. Exactly
1: but on the QAnon shop in Germany, like, oh, this communist, he's he's going to get him, and I'll be like, well, yeah.
2: Uh, au contraire! I have have actually served on two juries in my life already. In my short, well, it's not that short anymore. I'm, I'm almost at middle age here, but I have served on two juries already. Wow.
1: I would love to be on a jury. The best thing you can get, and most people would say, no, this would be awful, is is the grand jury. My friend uh, got, because they, they don't, they can't throw you off of a grand jury in DC, apparently only only a petite jury. So if you're called for the grand jury, there's no like, you know, oh, this person is is a Marxist who used to work for the ACLU. Uh, we better not have him on this and uh he he got a lot out of the uh out of being on the grand jury can, can i just
2: say for uh, briefly though if to all our
1: nation sam the grand juries have the right to inspect prisons and roads
2: hmm i, I was just going to say to all our listeners out there who uh, are eventually going to go through um, jury duty and the uh, selection process be sure that if you are going to tell them that you are a Marxist or an anarchist or whatever, or you just um, distrust the police, be sure to tell them that you are skeptical of the police or a Marxist or whatever, but you don't think that it will impact your ability to be an impartial juror. Because once you say that, the prosecutor has to use up one of their strikes to uh, to dismiss you. Otherwise, you get dismissed and the prosecutor doesn't have to use up anything. Hmm.
1: And I would be an impartial juror. I I I just uh, have an actual understanding of what what the law is, unlike the prosecutors in this nation.
0: Yeah. Well, as I was saying earlier, Chip, uh, this story, of course, holds relevance not just because the FBI is is uh, trying to engage or is engaged in similar activities, but also. The way that journalism approaches these issues, it seems like we have reverted back in a lot of ways to that mentality of the New York Times mailing the documents back to the FBI when you have all these warning labels on social media. and.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know people have polarizing feelings about, about the gray zone. I, I don't want to get into them, but like, like to put it mildly, but like what they're doing with putting that warning on that article is, is, is reprehensible and it is clearly a a, a double standard. And um, I don't know, I'm not excited about like, you know, Russian troll farms or Russian hackers, but like journalists information that's in the public interest and and the information they published about Reuters is certainly in the public interest. Uh, I don't, I don't think Twitter should be, should be censoring that, but you know, social media, Um, the role that these private companies play in basically having a monopoly on our modern day public sphere is an issue we're going to have to confront at some point. All right, let's talk about snacks. Um, I I, I have enough problems with the state state. I can't handle corporate monopolies who are Functioning as the state that we speak too much for one person to do Hmm. Snacks you want to talk about snacks Yeah I made it I made an interesting snack this week Some pistachios No I made an interesting
0: I made an interesting snack this week Uh, You know if you go back and you look at like Old cookbooks from like the 60s and 70s They have just like the most bizarre things in there Like jello and cottage cheese creations And um, all sorts of molds and stuff
1: eat a well, lot of ham for
0: breakfast yeah well i i did find a, a a snack recipe extremely simple this is something that my grandma used to make that i uh stumbled across and decided to make this week um but it reminds me of those bizarre sort of 70s recipes you'd find you take a loaf of bread preferably the thin sliced bread i think uh got to drop a name brand here, but I think Pepperidge Farm makes the thin sliced white bread, <laughs> which is is the good stuff. Then you take – Chip, you're, you're listening intently, telly, but I'm about to hurt your feelings because it's not vegan or vegetarian. Uh, you take butter and you mix it with beef bouillon. Those little powder cubes, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You mix butter in this beef bouillon, so you have this sort of spread – and you, you could sp- do it with vegetable
2: bouillon too, for the yeah. record. I'd just like to say, you probably. You probably. could
0: actually. You probably could actually. Anyways, you cut the bread into each slice of bread into three sticks into lengthwise. So you have three little bread sticks. And you butter both sides with your butter and beef bouillon. And then you cook it in the oven at 350 for about 15 minutes. And it comes out in these delicious, buttery, salty little toasties that you can use as crackers to put cheese on or dip or whatever, and they're fucking delicious. I ate like 100 of them yesterday.
1: Uh, since I'm not trying to kill the audience, I'm gonna recommend they eat
0: you Use some vegetable bouillon, <laughs> try it, Chip. I think you'll like it.
1: I, um, I uh, like not having heart disease. <laughs>
0: Fair enough. I mean, Probably
1: do, that, that's me the least of
0: the stuff drink. that's giving me heart disease in my diet. Uh, my, I'll tell My, you my that.
1: healthy food eating is completely nullified by my, my years of uh, heavy alcohol use.
0: So, uh. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, I make up for it by not drinking as much.
1: Yeah, well, good for you, buddy. All right. Anybody
0: else want to offer anything or should we uh, close Just this that out right now?
1: Healthy, wholesome, not going to give you – well, I don't actually know. Everything kills you now. Chip, remind um, You know, I've, I've been I've been kind of lagging on the uh, snacks uh, this week, but
0: you, uh, it's because you're so on a tolerance break here. It's because you're on a tolerance break as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Chip, remind people where they can uh, view this event that's on Monday.
1: Sure. If you go to rightsanddescent.org, it is definitely at the top of the website. You can also go to rightsanddissent.org slash live slash break dash in dash 50 years, which is very convoluted. If you just check out our Twitter at rights and dissent, the periscope should pop up at three o'clock. We also have a YouTube page it will go live on YouTube at three o'clock as well.
2: Three o'clock Monday, defending rights and dissent.
1: And that's three o'clock Eastern time.
2: And if people don't watch it live, they can still, I assume, watch the video. Yeah,
1: on YouTube. YouTube is forever. So don't put anything foolish on there.
0: There it is. Chip Gibbons, thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week.